This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the Times Opinion Podcast, and a special extra opinion podcast. We won't just be recording on Tuesdays through the election period, but Fridays as well to bring you all the latest in this closest general election in a generation. And I'm joined today by columnist Daniel Finkelstein, our chief political correspondent Michael Savage, making his debut in our podcast, and uh, winging her way from The Spectator, that magazine's assistant editor, Isabel Hardman. Thank you all very much for for, for joining us and um, I've got five questions for you today so that we can summarise what's going on in the campaign and the first one please is what was your moment of the week? Isabel can well, you kick us off please? I think my moment of the week was probably Michael Fallon giving a speech on Thursday in which he warned that because Ed Miliband had stabbed his brother in the back over the Labour leadership he would stab the United Kingdom in the back over Trident by going into a deal with the SNP. I thought it really showed some jitters in the Tory campaign actually, that they were resorting to those kind of measures and that they were using a very measured man like Michael Fallon to do it as well. I felt quite sorry for him actually. Did you guys agree that it was inappropriate, Michael Savage? Yeah, I think what was so important about those two sentences about Ed Miliband stabbing his brother and then threatening to stab the country in the back over Trident was that it actually spoke not just to some of the concerns about the Conservative campaign, but actually the whole Conservative project of modernisation under David Cameron, really. I mean, even if the Conservatives get over the line at the election, which is (coughs) entirely possible, some would say probable, it won't be by very much, and it won't be on the back of mass support. And the party will have to ask itself in those in that circumstances, when the, there's an economic recovery in the face of a Labour Party with obvious weaknesses, why people were so reluctant to put a cross in the Conservative box. And part of that has to be a brand problem about being seen as nasty. You can't deal with that in an election campaign, but you sh- certainly shouldn't reinforce it. And that's the danger of what's happened here. Uh, Daniel Finkelstein, one thing that uh, Isabel Hardman wrote, actually, in, on the Spectator blog, she told a story that Boris Johnson once told about putting a dead cat on a table and people start talking about the dead cat to distract from whatever was going on before. And apparently an Australian person advised this to David Cameron. Can't possibly imagine who that Australian uh, advised that to Boris Johnson. Can't possibly advise who that 
that Australian was. But were the Tories just trying to change the story, do you think, from the non-DOM issue that had dominated Wednesday's coverage? I should have thought they'd wanted to move on from the non-DOMs, and I'm sure they raised Trident for that reason. I'd be quite interested in how deliberate it was to raise Ed Miliband in, in the way that it was done. Funnily enough... Um, I think it's perfectly legitimate to raise the Ed Miliband um, issue and I think it's also perfectly legitimate to raise the question of character in an election and I think negative campaigning can work. So I didn't completely agree with the analysis. The oddity is I thought Ed Miliband was perfectly within his rights to run against the leadership uh, for the leadership against his brother so I don't think he stabbed his brother in the back. I don't trust him on Trident, but not because I think he'll stab Britain in the back. Um, so I didn't agree with the uh, particular critique of Ed Miliband, uh, but I don't think that in an election campaign it's unreasonable to raise questions that actually lots of people do have about Ed Miliband's um, character. And um, obviously the Conservatives will do that. So I also think you do, do, you do want to raise issues... Trident or Ed Miliband's character that take you off the uh, issue and it, it's funny because on the left they raised plenty of issues I raised one in my column for the Times this week uh, where Martin Freeman's broadcast was entirely about uh, the whether the Conservatives had decent character yeah. and then when that very question is raised about Ed Miliband they complained but it was in fact the thrust of their first this broadcast. Was, this was the Defence Secretary one of the most senior members of the government calling someone else in politics a backstabber. Now, nobody in business well, talks about their competitors like that. Actually, Nobody really... In actually, no Tim, he didn't, in fact, use that phrase. He said that Ed Miliband stabbed his brother in the back. Now, that is actually a slightly different point. Uh, and it's also, if you think that's a reasonable analysis of what he did to David Miliband, a Stab correct one. Stabbed certainly, him in the front. Certainly, uh, David Mil anything. certainly David Miliband thought it was. So the question is whether it is a reasonable question to raise in an election campaign, a question of trust and uh, a question of his character. I think those are reasonable. As it so happens, I don't think the analysis of his character is correct, which leaves me not completely supporting the statement. But do I think it was unreasonable? No. Isabel? Well, I wonder whether it was right for the Tories themselves to raise the question. Given they have quite a few supporters in the press, would it not have been better to suggest it to a columnist or mm. to maybe bat some stories around that, that were carried by surrogates, I suppose, rather than doing it yourself, get someone else to do your dirty work. Also, people already know about the David Miliband, Ed Miliband feud. You may not even need to raise it. They already talk about it on the doorstep. It's something that Labour candidates say to me people already bring up. So perhaps bringing it up yourself as the Conservative Party will, will do your do your brand more damage than it harms the Labour brand. Michael? Yeah, i just say two things. One really speaks to a confusion at the Tory attack on Ed Miliband. Is he this ruthless person who knifes his own brother or is he a weak leader who really doesn't have a proper agenda for the country? Um, so there's a certain confusion about Miliband there. The old, uh, something a Tory MP said to me yesterday was that it was almost as if the Conservative Party were giving Miliband the opportunity to look the statesman yesterday by rising above it and saying mm. Michael Fallon was demeaning his office. And when you look at the, one of the strengths of the Conservatives was that their guy, Cameron, was better than Miliband, that Labour's guy. That's a bit of a problem. OK, well, I should say that um, Phil Collins, in his Friday column for The Times, has addressed the Tory critique of Ed Miliband and 
Daniel Finkelstein's um, call, uh, a letter to Martin Freeman and indeed Michael Fallon's article on Trident. If you are a Times subscriber, please go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central. You can read those articles and other background <laughs> reading to things we've been discussing. But we're still on question one, Michael. Um, what was your moment of the week, if indeed it was a different one? Well, yes, I think it was probably the moment that probably prompted the Fallon attack, which was Labour's plan to all but abolish the non-DOM rule, which allows very wealthy people to avoid paying British tax on overseas income and capital gains. It was a big intervention. Uh, I'd sort of seen it coming with Ed Balls telling the Times a couple of months ago that he was interested in this. Mm, and it was yeah. a big move and it uh, caught the Conservative Party on the hop. Um, I do think that uh, George Osborne has made similar moves to clamp down on non-DOM status. Uh, and I'm sure he's going to do more. But it was, a, it was an example of a, a Labour ambush really coming off and a party has had a record of maybe not succeeding in that department. I, I think it gave Labour a real good week. Did you think it mattered that Tory HQ were quite quickly able to unveil that video where Ed Balls gave the impression that getting rid of non-DOM status could actually cost the country money? Do you know, actually, I don't know how important that is uh, because... It was a, a video in which he said that uh, he didn't think you should abolish it altogether because you needed certain rules for people who were genuinely here temporarily to work in the UK. I think that's got a bit of Westminster Village about it, in mm. all honesty. I think the idea that there's a group of people who don't play by the same rules in terms of tax, people would be astonished that there was such a rule, let alone that it's still here 200 years after being introduced. So I actually think overall it was a, a good hit for Labour. And, and you reported, I think in Thursday's edition of the paper, that the Tories are actually considering their own sort of onslaught on non-DOMs yeah. by abolishing this ridiculous situation in my view that you can inherit non-DOM so status. What, so what's very interesting is actually Osborne does deserve quite a lot of praise in this area because he in opposition first proposed an annual charge on non-DOMs in office he's gone further and making them pay more. Clearly there's more coming um, and I think what the Conservatives will do is say well look we're just tidying up some of the abuses of the rule but actually what they'll propose at some point is something looks very much like what Labour have done this week so mm. um, as I say Osborne deserves credit but Labour's probably a successful ambush this week. Daniel Finkelstein? I chose that as my moment of the week as well. Yeah. Um, you know, in a campaign, you hit the ball in the centre of the bat. They clearly did. Um, it's very difficult. What do the Conservatives do? Can they? Do they announce their own changes to non-DOMs? Well, that looks completely uh, defensive. Um, do they defend non-DOMs? Well, that would clearly be disastrous. They're stuck. Um, so uh, that was very successful. The Conservatives actually did the best that they could, which is find the Ed Balls video, muddy the water a bit. Both things are somewhat Westminster Village issues because because most people don't know what non-domicile tax is. But undoubtedly, uh, first of all, in the morning before that video came out, they clearly got very good morning broadcasts. Uh, and then through the day, they clearly had the policy issue. So uh, that was, uh, you know, in an election campaign, those, you're looking for those moments where you can get a clear hit. The other side can't catch you for a while, and I thought they have succeeded in doing mm. that. I don't, I don't put massive store by these things as game changers, uh, but I you know, insofar as they are, that was. So it firms up the Labour vote and helps Labour with its problem on its left well, flank. One of the things to understand about opinion polls is that often fluctuations in opinion polls are, are caused by changes in certainty to vote of your own supporters. They don't necessarily see that through, uh, but that's one of the things that produces peaks and troughs. So when you see Labour's going down, it's often because Labour supporters become uncertain about their own leader. And so if you 
do something for your core vote, you will sometimes go up. I think inheritance tax was an example of that because mm. people suddenly think, oh, it's worth voting for you. So I thought I felt that was a hit for them. Isabel Hardman, George Osborne has introduced tax measures that have hit the rich quite hard over time. And you know, not so long ago, he was announcing a reform to stamp duty that really increased the share of stamp duty that would be coming from people buying large property. So the Tories have had their equivalents of the mansion tax and tax, but none of it seems to quite stick in the same way. The Tories aren't quite managing to deal with this party of the rich reputation. No, and I suppose that's because every measure that does in some way help the rich or hit the poorest harder is noticed more because it conforms to the stereotype and so it, it works better in terms of a narrative, particularly in terms of a narrative that the Tories' opponents are crafting. And the Tories are never very good at fighting back at that um, Danny's column this week where he fought back against the idea that if you're left-wing you're compassionate and if you're right-wing then you're not. That that sort of assumption it actually sticks for a lot of people and so the Tories always have to fight doubly hard mm. on this and I think they're still haunted really by the 2012 budget and the mess they made of a necessary measure in terms of lowering the top rate of tax that they really botched in terms of the, the politics mm. of it. Okay, well let's, let's move on to our uh, second question. Come to you first, Michael Savage, with this one. Who, who had a good week, in, in your opinion? Sure, well, I'm going to go a bit left field with this one. Good, otherwise we could get a bit repetitive. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I'm going to say the Labour ground operation, uh, because I think there's really signs that uh, really quite a sophisticated uh, Labour uh, uh, work internally to look at marginal constituencies, where certain voters are, uh, which ones are switching to which parties. The sign that that is really starting to have some effect. Mm. There was some marginal polling by Lord Ashcroft out this week. Eight marginal polls, seven held by the Conservatives, one by Labour. A 5% swing towards Labour, which saw Labour winning five of those eight seats as we stand. Now, in a tight election, that is so important, and it is actually due to quite a lot of work, sophisticated work, that, that Labour has done. Because mm. uh, 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 the Tories have a lot more money, don't they? Perhaps twice as much money as some, some estimates say. They've been able to spend it over a long time. But are we just beginning to see the consequences of the collapsed in Tory membership? They just don't have the troops on the ground to get the leaflets out, knock on the doors, make the phone calls? I think there's some of that, and, uh, of course, a lot of the... The fact that Conservatives have, have more money means that people perhaps uh, receive a lot of information. So it's not the same as seeing lots of Labour activists out on the yeah. street. There's more invisible work, if you like, that the Tories do. But I think really what I'm saying about the Labour ground operation is this is the fruits of some detailed dossiers they've done in some uh, lots of really important seats. Uh, I'm talking about down to the number of households, uh, to the last household, that are vulnerable to, say, switching to UKIP and mm. why they're vulnerable to switching to UKIP and putting them in groups and targeting them with the right messages. And I think it, there is signs that it's working. Fascinating. Um, Danny, who, who had a good week for, for, for you? Uh, I'm going to say Nicola Sturgeon. And for a very odd reason, which is that she didn't have a very good week. And at the end of that week, she was very, very high. And the SNP look as though they're going to sweep the board. And that's the best possible week that you can have. <laughs> it's like in a football game when you don't play well, but you get all the three points and you get a reputation for being a team that does that. Mm -hmm. um, what this suggests is that the SNP's... Uh, a sort of swing from Labour is pretty robust. It meant that 
she did a debate performance against Jim Murphy, and despite the fact that lots of commentators who saw it thought that her performance was certainly no better than Jim Murphy's, maybe no better than Ruth Davidson's either, uh, the people who watched it, because they were already determined to vote SNP, thought she was great. Uh, and um, so what we're about to see in Scotland is really a generation um generational shift you know a huge shift maybe not actually once in a generation is to underestimate it but once in a hundred years um and uh really very significant um in my view very significant in a bad way uh but obviously that's not what the people who are planning mm. to produce it think um so uh i felt that you have to look at the week that she's had um the you might say the previous week was good, but that was when she was kind of being the outsider. People weren't going to vote. That for was her, when she was in the all UK correct. debate rather than the two Scottish the debates debate. we've heard this week. Because she did come a little bit unstuck when Jim Murphy pressed her on the second referendum. Well, that's exactly my point. Um, yes, you might have thought so, but that clearly doesn't make that much difference. Yeah. Uh, probably there are quite a lot of people in Scotland who want a second referendum. And if 45% of people voted yes and 45% of people vote for the SNP, they'll win almost every seat. So we're talking about, let, let's not forget what we're talking about here. We're talking about, for example, the Shadow Foreign Secretary losing his seat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and we're talking about Labour, which with this immense group in Scotland, which has been one of the key parts of its, has produced the Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the last government, uh, was planning to produce the Foreign Secretary in the next Labour government, they're not having any of those seats. Oh, no. It's really it, extraordinary. Did, did, Isabel, Michael, did you watch any of the Scot either of the Scottish debates this week? Um, I thought the uh, there was uh, clearly the, the, the moment of the uh, the first debate was the sort of intake of breath from the audience when Nicola Sturgeon was equivocal about a, a second referendum. And it did, uh, just as Danny says, look like a, the first moment where she was caught on the hop, didn't have it all her own way. And the net effect is the SNP scoring their record vote share with YouGov this week. Absolutely. Well, um, Isabel Hardman, who, who had a good week for you? Well, I'll go for the most obvious, which is that I Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. I think Labour have had a good week. They, they've edged ahead in, in some of the polls. They've got people talking about policies that they're offering, whereas the Conservatives have been talking about attacks and being quite negative. 
And so I think actually a lot of a Labour MPs who I was speaking to yesterday seemed quite upbeat. They're also very happy because Tony Blair came to Labour HQ and rallied the troops with a positive speech saying he was very optimistic about Labour's chances in the election. Even if you disagree with Tony Blair, hearing that from him when he's been quite pessimistic in some interviews mm. is quite encouraging. He does seem to be quite on side. Yeah, he's, he's gone loyal for the yeah. election, at least. It's very interesting. Um, a bad week. Danny, start w- w- with you. Who, who didn't do so well in the last <coughs> seven days? I would say Nigel Farage. And it's not because I think that Nigel Farage has had any one individual moment that was bad. Uh, but uh, one of the things when I was trying to sort of build a model for myself about how to predict the general election that I thought would happen would be that when the... UKIP moved to the position of being a major party in Ofcom terms, in other words, getting a large proportion of broadcast media. They'd break into the big stories, they'd constantly be breaking it up with their uh, anti-government message, Uh, there'd be a bandwagon effect after the Mm. debates, uh, and that hasn't happened. Uh, It didn't happen last week, and it hasn't happened this week. Instead, you know, I noticed from the paper this morning there were that our paper was referring to their campaign as shambolic. This is Friday um, morning, yeah. That, yes, I'm sorry, it's yes, yeah. Friday morning. So that, that referring to their campaign as shambolic, and instead of having a bandwagon, it's almost like a reverse bandwagon, so they're being squeezed in a lot of seats. That doesn't mean to say that it's going to affect the number of seats they get nationally, but it, it does mean that um, instead of dominating the campaign in the way that I think people... Uh, thought he might um he's actually had uh, on the back foot so i would say it's not been a good week for him and there's a, a, a some evidence as well that UKIP is being squeezed particularly in the marginal seats yes the voters are going back to the conservatives and to labor according to the ashcroft polls which means that actually no party's necessarily pulling ahead because of ukip voters coming home but there's a sense i think there's also a sense that ukip are trying to run a national campaign still when their original strategy was to run a Lib Dem campaign where they really hunkered down to a small number of seats. I still think the seats that they're focusing on, they've got too many of them. So Farage shouldn't have been in Grimsby. You, you were week. up there, you were up I, I there was with up him. There. Yeah. And, um, Joey Essex. With Joey Essex, yes, <laughs> and lots of protesters following him around. And it was quite a chaotic day for, for lots of reasons. But he should be in South Thanet trying to fight that seat and win yeah. it because if he doesn't win South Thanet, he will have to stand down. And as impressive as some of the people below Nigel Farage are, they're not Nigel Farage, they're not magnets, and the UKIP project will be seriously damaged if he has to step down, if he doesn't win pa- pa- so he should be fighting fa- away fatally damaged, but mm. just to be devil's advocate Michael Savage, um, the Mail on Sunday said that South Thanet was a three horse race, which on the face of it is bad news for Nigel Farage it says it's, you know, it's a close contest but in a way, that's he wants the anti-Farage vote to be confused as to whether to vote Tory or Labour to get him out and at the moment the Tories and Labour are both claiming to be the second place candidate so he could yet still come through the the middle in that seat. Uh, that's uh, perfectly true and we shouldn't uh, discount him winning that seat. Indeed he's probably favourite but there is something very interesting happening in South Thanis and it goes back to what I was talking about the Labour ground campaign. Actually they've not only targeted people who are drifting to UKIP, they've actually got quite a neat message directly to female soft conservative voters mm. who don't like the idea of their town and uh, themselves being represented by the leader of UKIP. Mm. They're trying to appeal to that idea that's a cynical move about national politics, about division and actually the Labour candidate is having some success as painting himself as the Stop Farage candidate and if he starts to get success in finding those mysterious people uh, Tory to Labour switchers uh, there's a real chance that Labour could score an upset there. Well, you're, you're, that's the second time you've frightened me about <laughs> Labour sophistication of the Labour ground operation um, Who had a bad week for you Michael? 
Uh, well, I've got to go back to um, non-DOMs, I'm afraid, and not just because of the Labour announcement. I think whoever wins the election, non-DOMs will find themselves either paying quite a lot more money or finding a new place to live, because I think it's inconceivable. Danny's absolutely right about the Conservatives not being able to announce now what they would do to make non-DOMs pay more, but I certainly think uh, George Osborne, um, a very shrewd operator, would uh, increase the amount they would pay, and whoever's in power, they'll find their uh, tax bill goes up. OK. Um, Isabel, bad week for you? Well, I think the Conservatives are getting a bit, of a, a bit of a punishment for being so complacent about how things were going to go in this campaign. If you talk to a Tory MP three weeks ago, they say, yes, we're definitely going to win, everything's fine, we're doing really well, Labour are hopeless. Well, they're realising the campaigns were a little bit more difficult than that, and this campaign's not, not, not going to be Not Tory members, there was a poll on Con Home this week, 78%, a record number of Tory activists think the Conservatives will still, well, David Cameron still. will still be Prime Minister. I, th I think the Tory MPs still have that basic feeling, but I think mm. they, they've hit a bit of a jittery patch where they haven't seen themselves cruising ahead in the way they were expecting. We haven't had this magical crossover moment. I don't think there's going to be open sort of panic about that, partly because Linton Crosby, who's been predicting this crossover moment, c can behave in sort of the same way as a religious sect does it, when it predicts the end of the world and that when we all wake up the next day and the world hasn't ended they just move the date <laughs> on a little bit further so he will get away with it until polling day Danny, do you buy this that the Tories are machine isn't quite firing on all cylinders in the way that it or is it just too early uh, it is still easter weekend lots of people are still yeah. on holiday perhaps not watching the news is do we conservatives like <coughs> me who are agree with isabel need to have a little bit more patience yes i do think that although um you know i'm i'm having to answer the question uh, with a gun at my head uh, who had a good week who had a bad week actually that's not really the way that i analyze the campaigns at all i think these things go up and down mm -hmm. and somebody has a good day somebody has a bad day at the end of the day you either think that, that the conservatives basic plan which is to try to turn people who say yes i want david cameron to be prime minister yes i want uh, the i think the Conservative economic plan is better than Labour's, but no, I'm not planning to vote Conservative into triple yeses, right? Yeah. And and you do that by raising the salience of those things that people already think uh, yeah. Ed Miliband wouldn't be a good Prime Minister. Uh, the economy is strong. Uh, stay with us, um, and you have to stick with that in a fairly rigorous way while everything goes on around you. And we, um, and we had a piece in the Times this week from Stephen Shakespeare of YouGov, which did say that the Tory repetition that might be slightly tedious for us. The voters have really got it, whereas they haven't really registered a lot of the Labour messages that come and go. If, if the Conservative campaign is unsuccessful, it will be down to something much more fundamental, which will be the question of whether or not people are better off or not. Yeah. Uh, and, a question of whether they, and not actually whether they are better off, but whether they feel better off. Yeah. Uh, there's an absolutely strong case for suggesting that people don't feel that more, more widely enough, uh, and therefore the Conservative basic appeal won't work. Uh, but that will not be due to you know Thursday and whatever's mm. happening. So I think that um, I take a reasonably calm um, view about about it. Okay, well look, the gun is still to your head, so you've still got to keep answering my questions. Okay. <laughs> so, and the next one is, what did new thing did you learn this week? Um, well, actually, it is a related point, and it's that um, the Conservative campaign is unbelievably relentless. Now, that may, may or may not be a good thing. So if it's wrong um, about its central focus, in other words, that people 
think it will be okay to have in Miliband as Prime Minister or they don't feel well off enough that they think it's, and they don't think Labour's therefore much of a risk, uh, then it will fail. Um, but it is very relentless. So it's extremely well planned and it doesn't get panicked. And so although you might think the Conservative Party lost the day on non-DOMs, uh, it did that a little bit by throwing it. In other words, it didn't panic. Uh, and I think probably, uh, considering that I in my head thought, God, I think that's a brilliant move, what should the Conservative Party do? And then when I thought it through, I thought, actually, the answer to this is not to do anything. I think it's probably the right response, although it is really, really hard. If you if you ask me personally what I learned this week, um, don't follow the general election on Twitter. Uh, that, that doesn't mean to say that I don't <laughs> learn a huge amount on Twitter, but, for example, at five o'clock in the afternoon, you think the Labour Party scored a massive um, uh, victory in the polls, and then you get two polls where the Conservative Party is actually ahead uh, and um, I mean the Guardian uh, amazingly managed to run on the day the polls turn on three polls that appeared before the two that yeah, yeah. showed it hadn't so I think it's quite dangerous to follow the election like that uh, and so uh, all, my candidates will often be relentlessness don't follow the election on Twitter don't follow the election in the Guardian follow the election in the Times good advice That's very good advice. Uh, Michael well it's a related point and uh, I was always told that um, the secret weapon of the Conservative Party was discipline and that's really been brought home to me this week actually especially after the Michael Fallon intervention you know I spoke to a lot of conservatives who very privately would say well look you know I quite feel quite uncomfortable about this but you know even the most the biggest troublemaker in the party uh, in terms of MPs and candidates there wasn't really a peep uh, no one went over the top and uh, I can tell you that <laughs> privately there were quite a lot of concerns about that intervention. And that Philip Hammond wasn't exactly on message. I think he was asked four times to sort of affirm what uh, yeah. the Defence Secretary had said and no, he sure. didn't. I think when uh, Philip Hammond live on television repeatedly asked would he repeat the words, he wouldn't. I think that's one thing. Uh, I think if it wasn't an election, uh, yesterday you would have had quite a lot of Conservative MPs going over the top saying this is frankly inappropriate. What were the words, what was the word he was asked to repeat? Uh, is he a backstabber? Right, see, the, the interesting thing about that is, as I said, he didn't yeah, actually think is that he... Yeah, so yeah. therefore, if I was Philip Hammond, the problem that Philip Hammond had in that circumstance is, is whether or not to, to, to say something that was actually in our headline yeah. as a... As a reasonable capturing of what And so when, yeah. should they have added, I think he probably did the right thing, probably did the right thing not to add more words, because then he would have used a word that Michael Fallon had not used. Yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure with it. That's just a, yeah, no, a detail. Uh, Isabel, did you learn anything extra special this week? Well, the, the thing that I've learnt is that Ed Miliband has had a very interesting love life and that lots of the papers are fascinated by the number of women who have fancied him and they seem to think that this is a bad thing. But I have to say, I think a lot of voters would think, oh, good on him. Lots of women have gone after him. I can't really see that something. as being a negative <laughs> attribute no, at all. Yeah, well, I, I saw this in the front of the uh, Telegraph and mail and I thought, yeah, this is not exactly going to hurt Ed Miliband. It's not the headline you're going to lay awake wafting her about at night, is it? Never hurt Clegg, did it? His sort of no story. I was <laughs> truly amazed by the uh, story with the suggestion that it was in any way unethical of him to have had those relationships, or that it was reflecting on him badly in any respect. I, I thought it was just odd. It doesn't at all. I was much more worried by Phil Collins' revelation, his column, that... Um, 
they went to Oldborough and uh, Ed Miliband read a book on Ian McLeod and Phil sat there reading a book on rules. That sounded much more worrying as it affected street credibility. Um, final question, and we must wrap up soon. Um, what should Times readers expect next week? Um, Isabel, why don't you go first for us? It's Manifestos yes, Week. Yes, it's time to talk about policies, which <laughs> is very exciting. So I bet got, we won't for the whole week. No, perhaps we'll be talking about people's girlfriends again by Friday. But we've got the Labour Manifesto on Monday and the Tories have delayed their manifesto till Tuesday. Yes, now what do we make of that? Are the Tories played a little bit of a game of... Been you know, scared about interchanging their day? Or? You can understand why you'd want to do it for, from the point of view of getting a lot of coverage. You don't want your coverage to be diluted by interest in something else. They want to have a chance to attack Labour's policies. And also, they, they may, given the number of redrafts that the manifesto seems to have gone through for the Tories, they may be wondering whether they can sit there and, and sneak in a policy at the last minute based on what Labour have come out with. Yeah. Danny, what are you looking forward to well, next week? Well, uh, there is only one thing. It is the manifesto week. Um, obviously, it's the right thing to move it from Monday to Tuesday. You don't have your manifesto. It's not good for public debate. And then we think one party or the other always moves it. I don't think it really matters terribly much whether you're the day uh, before or the day after. Um, I think the, both manifestos will be quite interesting for a very interesting reason, which is that we don't actually know that much about what either party's planning to do, weirdly, because the Conservatives, even though they've been in government, have been in government with the Liberal Democrats, um, and so therefore we don't know what their plans are. And Labour um, have kept the blank sheet of paper blank for a very long time. One of the reasons why they were able to bring out non-DOMs as a policy is that they don't have any policies. I mean, I know, I'm not saying that because neither the Conservatives are not saying that as a party point, but because both parties have got remarkably little... Um, the, 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 Labour have loads of policies, well, don't they? I don't think they're necessarily well the, known. I don't, mean by, I don't mean by that um, they haven't got anything to say or they don't believe in anything. I mean by a more technical thing, which is they haven't had a sort of big central programme, the, the, the core of which we really grasp and understand, like Blair had in 1997, mm. and neither to the Conservatives. So it will be very interesting to see what comes out of that. Uh, I, the thing that I... Um, will learn most this week, however, will not be what's in each individual manifesto, but what each party thinks of each other's manifesto. So in the Liberal Democrats case, the most important thing is what are they planning to do about the Conservative proposal to have an in-out referendum on Europe? In other words, where are the red lines? When the manifestos come out, we can begin to start the red line questions. Mm. And I think the red line questions, which haven't really featured so much in the election campaign, will be very interesting in the last few weeks. Do you think the Tories would do something bold on housing? This is the big question I have for the Tory manifesto. Yeah, I, I would predict they'll do something bold on housing and it won't be bold enough for you, Tim. That would be my question. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably right. Um, Michael, are you going to give us... A mani- is manifesto is going to be your the answer to what to look forward to next No, week? it's not, actually. Right, I'm going to, I'm bonus going... point for you, then, in that case. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go for the challengers debate. This is a debate that doesn't include David Cameron and Nick Clegg, uh, but does include Ed Miliband. This is a significant risk for Mr Miliband because it means he's going to appear in a debate alongside all the minority party leaders. The danger is he's going to get hit from all sides, from the right, from UKIP, from the left, from SNP, Plaid Cymru. And the Greens, uh, as the establishment party, uh, he could be out- outflanked all over the place. There are people in uh, Scotland, his own MPs, furious that he's taking part. It could go very wrong. He might defy expectations again. Well, I have to say, at that half an hour, I know that you'll get a better half an hour view of politics than you three have provided. Thank you so much. I hope everyone who has listened has enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, can I just advertise once more, if you want some background reading to what we've discussed and you're a Time subscriber and if 
if you're not a Times subscriber, why aren't you? Um, do go to thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral for those links. Um, I'll be back on Tuesday with Hugo Rifkind, Matthew Paris and Jenny Russell and also my producer Dave Maguire. Have a great weekend and thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.